mindfulness mode. You allow your external environment to control you rather than the other way around. You really are increasing your risk. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. Mindful Tribe, we often talk with experts who have been through real challenges in in their lives, and today is no exception. My guest today has been through some really eye-opening challenges that have changed his life. And one of the things he says, which so many people say, but it's so true, nothing happens by accident. Today, I'm here with Dr. Richard Schuster, and he's a clinical psychologist. He's a TEDx speaker. He's CEO of Your Success Insights. Hey, Dr. Richard, it's great to have you here. Are you in mindfulness mode today, Richard? I most certainly am. I got up this morning with intentionality. I was excited about it. We were chatting a little before air. Saturday recordings are rare for both of us, but we really only do them when they're special. So I'm very excited to be here and hoping to add some value to your listeners today. Yeah, and I'm very much looking forward to being on your show as well. Tell us about your show, Richard. The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster, Food for the Brain knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. Although what we do is that the call to action every episode is to get our listeners to commit a million acts of kindness and post it in their social media feeds using using the hashtag MyDailyHelping. It is all about raising people up uh, so that they reach their truest potential because if everybody is doing what makes them happy, the world is going to be a better place. Yeah, and I really like the name of that and how that works, you know, The Daily Helping. I think it's a great name for a podcast. And when I listen to your podcast, I really resonate with you and the way you interview your your guests. I think it's a terrific show that you've put together, Dr. Richard. That means a lot. Thank you. Can I tell you a funny story yeah, about course. how the, the name came to be? So originally I had conceived the show a little bit differently. And so I, I am a clinical psychologist. And so I I remember watching a show with my dad in the late 70s. So I just kind of dated myself there a bit, but it was called In Search Of, and it was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Do you remember that yes, one? Yes, yes. And the of each week was like in search of the Loch Ness Monster, in search of aliens, whatever the, the of was, was you know, the, the topic du jour. And so I said, oh, well, I'm going to call my show the psychology of, and the of was going to be one week, it might be anxiety or the next week, depression. And, and, and I realize in hindsight, now I would have run out of topics pretty quickly like that, but, uh, <laughs> I was a practicing psychologist at the time and just, you know, Dr. Phil lost his license because he did some stuff on TV and he can never practice again. And so I, I just, you know, I worked pretty hard to get my degree and wanted to make sure I didn't accidentally do something that could jeopardize my ability to practice. So the American Psychological Association, if you're a member of that, allows you to call and ask questions of their legal team. So there, so I call up the lawyer and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to start this podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to name the show, the psychology of, and what they basically told me, and I'm not paraphrasing. This is, this is their words. If you do that, we will shut you down so fast. Your head will spin. Wow. And I said, what? Well, I, you know, I was just kind of dotting my eyes and crossing my T's and why, why would you do that? And so, because you're intimating that if people listen to the show, 
because you're using the word psychology. They didn't like that. You're intimating that your listeners are going to improve their mental health by listening to your show. And I said, no, 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 I'm not doing anything. I'm bringing on experts in these various topics. They're the ones sharing the information. And they just said, don't do it. And I mm -hmm. said, all right. So then I went back to the drawing board and I have a friend who's an English professor, lifelong friend. And he helped me with this. And he said, well, you know, how about a double entendre? How about the daily helping food? And then we, we kind of wordsmith the, the, the subtitle, but a helping could be a portion. Yeah, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, what you so I called them back up with that and grumble, 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 but they, they were okay with it. They were like, yeah, that'll be fine. And I have recorded that call <laughs> and like everything was cool. So then um, it totally changed the scope of the show because now it wasn't just a psychology show, although I have had on experts in mental health from time to time. Now I'm able to really talk about anything. So that was the greatest accidental thing to ever happen because I took myself out of a very small niche. And now, you know, I mean, sometimes I have people like, we're going to like, when you come on, we'll do mindfulness, but I've had also, you know, financial experts and I've had entrepreneurial experts and it just kind of runs the gamut now. So, but that's how the name came about. It was, it was because I was kind of forced into changing it. Well, I'm so glad you explained that because it's, it's like I said, I think it's a great name. You've done so many different things in your life. And one of the things is that you're president of Every Kid Rocks. So uh, I want to talk about that. Before I do, though, Dr. Richard, I want to ask you, in your life, what does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah, I think mindfulness has become a word like gratitude that is almost now becoming cliche and is thrown around everywhere. You know, so when I say I've got a, a, a gratitude practice or a meditative practice, uh, you know, the, you, people roll their eyes, but well, everybody's got that. So I, I think mindfulness to me is not that bad things can happen or that there are emotional triggers in our lives that you know, our problem for us and we ignore them. Rather, mindfulness is being able to kind of, I look at it like being on a surfboard and you're riding that wave and that by being aware of your senses, by being aware of how you're thinking, feeling and reacting, you can kind of ride those high waves and low waves and keep yourself more balanced. Listen, if, if, if you're, you know, sitting on a bag of uh, shards of broken glass that hurts and that's a bad thing. So, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a misconception that if you meditate, if you have a mindfulness practice, that all of a sudden the bad things just go away and they're not bad anymore. That's not true. But I think, and it's particularly important in a COVID world, mindfulness allows you to navigate that better and really maintain control of your emotional functioning so that you can you know, take action. You can approach a situation with control rather than letting the situation control you. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that, Dr. Richard. Absolutely true. Every Kid Rocks. Tell us about that and how you arrived at the point where you you founded that organization. Thank you for that. Yeah, so this was a, a really a, one of, you know, I would say the three miracle points in my life. And um, we talked about the other two a bit offline. So this, this the, the, genesis of this was in 2012 when I was still in my residency. 
I was doing 80-ish hours a week, and uh, my wife was very much pregnant with our firstborn son. And I got a call that my wife had collapsed and was being taken to the hospital. She was 31 weeks pregnant at the time. And so I, where I was training was the opposite end of town. I was in Miami at, at the time. And so I, you know, rescheduled that patient I was seeing and got in the car and flew across town. And by the time I got there, they had already done all of the routine tests on my wife. And so we were just waiting for the doctor to come in. And when the doctor walked in, he was white as a ghost. And I, you know, and then he, he, and he said, well, I've got good news and bad news which is worse than bad news because that's what we're kind of taught to, to, you know, to prep people for the worst. So the good news was the reason why my wife was had collapsed in debilitating pain is because my son was kicking her sciatic nerve. That's uh-huh. very painful, uh-huh. but really is not dangerous to either the mother or the unborn child. It's just, it's incredibly painful. Right. However, the reason why he was so spooked at this, this physician is because my wife had a, a imperceptibly small hole in her cervix, had been leaking amniotic fluid, just like you had a tiny crack in your radiator that you wouldn't have known it. So uh-huh. there would be no way to know. But why he was startled was that had we not come in the day we came in, my son would have suffocated to death in utero within the next 12 hours, and she would have had to deliver him stillborn. Wow. And so I believe, you know, now with hindsight, I I think my son saved his own life and I don't, he's seven now. I don't know what his purpose for this world is, but I I believe it's grand and there's something special he's meant to do. But so at the time, uh, and I just kind of spoiled the end a little bit, the happy ending, but at the time, uh, you know, they basically said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stick you with an IV full of fluids, ma'am. And if we can get your levels up, we're going to let you continue to let your baby gestate. Otherwise we have to take him now. And so I'm in my residency and I'm working with kids who have, I mean, I'm seeing the 1%, right? I'm seeing those with severe autism and developmental delays and cancer. I'm see- and my wife, who by, by profession is a pediatric occupational therapist. These are the kids we work with every day. So the literally the worst case scenario is what we see every day. And so... I'm now sent home. Uh, I'm tasked while well, she's to lie in bed and absorb fluids. I'm tasked with going home and building a crib, uh, which is not my skill set. It's not in my zone of genius. And so clearly says on the box, it's a two person job. It was like, a, you know, if somebody had a camera on me, I'm sure it would have been hilarious to watch that thing and like speed it up time uh, because it took me, you know, hours and hours to do this and I'd kind of lean one side and then it would collapse on me. And so anyway, I get back to the hospital 5.30 in the morning after I have assembled this crib and uh, I know what the outcome measures are of kids born at 31 weeks and they're not good. So I'm I'm terrified, um, but the levels went up just enough, just enough they were gonna try 12 more hours and then just enough for, for 12 more hours. And then that became 72 hours, became two weeks, became seven weeks. So my wife remained on bed rest. However, um, you know, he had, an, my child had enough fluid to, to live. And that's a critical, obviously, but didn't have enough fluid to move. So he spent the entire duration of his uh, gestation period with his head cranked 
all the way to the left. Like if you want to simulate this and, you know, only do this if you're a bit of a masochist, like crank your head as far to the left as you can till it hurts. And imagine being stuck like that for six weeks with a rib cage pressed up against it. So when he was born, his head was misshapen. Um, he developmentally early on was unaware that he had a right side of his body for a while. Uh, and, and we don't, you know, he couldn't bring his head to midline. Um, there were so many delays. And so I was making a big fat $36,000 a year working those 80 hours a week. Right. I, I calculated what that was hourly and I right. wanted to throw up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my wife was on bed rest. And so we didn't have people to, you know, support us financially in other ways. So uh, to get my son the help he needed, credit card, swipe, you know, get him a helmet to fix his misshapen head, $8,000 swipe. Um, you know, and we just kept doing that. And so fortunately, because we're in the industry, like we know what to look for. We know what these needs might be. So again, in Florida at the time, and I can't remember the name of the program, but every state more or less has a similar program where they'll send somebody out to your house to evaluate a kid and they test him in a number of areas, uh, kids under two. And that if the child meets a certain criteria and that is his scores are below a threshold, he gets help. And if he's above the line, he gets less help or no help. And so my son cognitively, though he had these issues, he was extremely intelligent, you know, because he gets his brains from his mother. And so um, uh, he, he, that brought up his overall aggregate scores. And so he didn't get the help he needed, not, not the full extent. And so we, again, took that on uh, with, with credit cards and put ourselves in a pretty good amount of debt at the time. Now, you know, I would do that a hundred times out of a hundred, any parent would, but you know, it became very evident how, uh, without these interventions, he was really going to struggle. And as we moved him into a preschool environment out of daycare, we had a really phenomenal teacher who went so above and beyond. And you know, when the occupational therapist would say he needed more sensory input, she'd have him at a sensory table. And so um, he didn't just catch up. He kind of exploded. And now as a seven-year-old, he is he can do any, I mean, I know, you know, everybody thinks their kid's the best, right? But I mean, he literally uh, can do everything that anybody else his age can or should be able to do. He's very smart. He's doing very good. So when, to bring it a little more closer to to the present, I interviewed Bob Berg on my podcast. He was one of my earliest well-known guests. I was very grateful that somebody like him with his degree of notoriety came on my show. And I was a little bit self-conscious in the beginning, like a little bit of imposter syndrome because I was just a guy with a personal email address who decided to start a show, right? And I would always ask my guests, how do you think that went? How did it go? You know, how could it be better? And Bob Berg just said, listen, Richard, I... I do this every day and you've got a gift. And if you keep doing this, you're really going to help people. And that was very empowering. And he wrote me a, a handwritten note and mailed it to me, which I still have, but that was like, that was very empowering, Bruce. And I remember like so excitedly busting down the bedroom door and my wife was reading on her Kindle. I don't know why Bob and I recorded at night, but we did. And I was like, Bob Berg likes me and blah, blah, blah. he thinks I'm a good host. <laughs> and I like, it was a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And I, and then I, you know, in that moment, I'm like, it won't be amazing when this podcast takes off and we can, I'd like to take $10,000 and just earmark that money to our son's preschool. So any kid like him who needs speech, physical and occupation, I couldn't finish the thought. 
I got the cartoon light bulb went off over my head and I got chills and I ran downstairs and I got on the, I got on GoDaddy and I typed in every kid rocks and the domain was available. It just came to me like in the stream of consciousness and I bought the domain. And then the next moment I sent an email to my attorney and said, we're going to start a nonprofit. Uh, this is what it's called. And what it's going to do is help schools get funds so that they can allocate those funds to kids who just need time limited speech, physical, and occupational therapy, because there's lots of programs and God bless them that help these, these kids who are never or likely never going to be able to function at, at, a, at an independent level, but nobody was in the space and literally nobody. Cause I, you know, when I kind of calmed down from that cloud nine moment, I researched it the next day. There's nobody who helps those kids who are the silent majority, actually, the ones that just fall below the threshold, the ones that just, they need help, but either their test scores aren't low enough or their grades aren't quite bad enough. You know, the kids with C's, they don't get noticed. It's the kids with F's and D's that get noticed. And these are the kids that potentially are, are at risk of developing low self-esteem and depression and all these other things. So, you know, if you can intervene with a young child and and right that ship you change their whole life so that's what every kid rocks is all about and and it's um it's one of my passions i mean i have several but it's certainly one of the things that, that i hope can can exist well beyond my time on this earth and just help help children for many many years wow i applaud you for that dr richard that is really fantastic and and it's just an example of how you know you have an idea and you really need to act in the moment a lot of times otherwise the whole idea will be gone and disappear and uh, i i think that's something that i've practiced as well over time is you know every once in a while i've gotten an idea and i just kind of go crazy with it and my wife says like come on bruce like <laughs> like just chill a little bit you know but sometimes i think taking action is like one of the most important things you can do so when it comes to mindfulness i know that you uh you mentioned unified mindfulness before i hit record on the podcast tell us about mindfulness in your life and how it plays a role so i have two young children and if you have children and you don't have a mindfulness practice that's a that's a really bad idea. Yeah, I totally <laughs> um, agree. <laughs> uh, but you know, mindfulness. So it's it's interesting, right? Like I've never really been very good at just crossing my legs, sitting in a in a, a zenful pose like Rafiki in The Lion King, and just you know letting the universe happen to me. So you know, I, I've got a mind that's very hard to turn off because I've always got a million ideas and thoughts, and and I get very excited very easily and kind of shiny object syndrome. So um, it is hard for me to meditate in the traditional sense. But what's really neat about mindfulness is that I recognize it, it's more about just being aware, like kind of turning, turning your senses on to where you're really thinking about sounds, sensations, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, how am I reacting to this? Uh, because that's really what allows me when when there are stressful things and, and everybody's got stressful things uh, to be able to you know just we ride this wave to be able to just say okay you know this is something that's going to be passed and and it's kind of like when i go into that mode and something's going on like you know the, the puppy has destroyed something of 
value or whatnot, and that happens often now, uh, is to then begin a deep breathing routine and to to do the these calming things, or even just you know just going through on my headphones and put on um, you know um, insight timer or something just for a few minutes and, and breathe. Uh, so it's I I think meditation and mindfulness is different for different people and everybody's got a little bit different approach, right? I mean, Dan Harris has something that's a little bit different than Juliana Ray. That's a little bit different than Emily Fletcher. And, you know, so there's not one true way to do it. However, you can center yourself. However, you can get yourself to a point where you can be aware of the emotions and really stand back and objectively, or at least as best you can in that moment, objectively view them. That's what matters. You know, there's, you know, I, and I, I get very skeptical of people who say, well, this is the only way to do. No, there, there's many paths that lead to this. And if you find one that works for you, that works for you. And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You have a fascinating Ted talk, TEDx talk. And, uh, I, I just want to ask you if you'll share a little bit of your TEDx talk with us. You talked about a, a devastating incident that happened in your life. And if you could just kind of fill us in a little bit on that. Sure. Th- yeah. So that was, that was my, I guess, first miracle moment. I was in a, a near fatal car accident in which I broke my spine. Wow, and that is, and I got extremely lucky again. Uh, if that, if that fracture point had been just a little bit higher, I would have been paralyzed from the neck down as a quadriplegic. If it had just been a little bit lower, I would have been a paraplegic, paralyzed from the waist down. Mm. And I can walk, and I can do everything, and I'm very, very lucky. But that. Um, that began a shift for me because, and you know, I talk about this in the TED talk, like I was brash. Um, I was obnoxious. I was entitled. I and mean, this was like in my very, my early mid twenties. Um, I had won a government contract that I had no business winning. And so all of a sudden I'm this young hotshot with a, a contract with the department of defense to build the pipe for their medical records for the army between two military uh, bases and, um, I was going to be the next big thing, right? Mm. Or at least I thought I was. Yes. I, would, I would literally get on eBay and I would like start Googling yachts and private islands. That it was gonna, I mean, it was so absurd to think about it in hindsight. And, and then this accident happened. And what's really interesting about um, near-death moments is a lot of, you know, in the movies, the, you hear the phrase, oh, I saw my life flash before my eyes. That's not really what happens. Actually, there's a phenomenon known as tachypsychia. And it, it's more of a, you become Neo in the matrix and everything slows down. And so I, I have this three second experience where the car hits me mm-hmm. and I'm sent spinning into oncoming traffic and I crash into a telephone pole. That's the only thing that stopped me was a telephone pole that I smashed into three seconds. And yet it was really surreal. Because number one, even though the, my center console is just being crushed into my ribs, I don't feel any pain. Um, my windshield is shattered and little bits of glass are flying through the air. And I'm looking at them like these things are in slow motion. Like literally it's like, you know, putting your phone on 120 frames a second shooting video. That's what it was like for me. And I had this internal dialogue with myself and it wasn't that I was bargaining uh, with a higher power to save my life. I was 
resolved to the fact that I was just about to die, that that was a, an assurity. Uh, is that a word, assurity? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I was dead. And I began thinking about what that meant, that my parents, who I knew were out with friends on a Saturday night, were going to get a call that I was dead my brother, uh, my friends, and reflecting on the watch I was wearing and the car that I was driving, and I wasn't taking those things with me. And there's more to it than this, but, but uh, you know, I want to respect our time, of course. But that put me on a path to where I, and there were some happenstance moments with that too, but that I ultimately shifted from how much money and stuff can I acquire to how can I do more for others? How can I be more altruistic? And then I go into a little bit of the science, the neuroscience of altruism and why, why that matters. So um, it was, and the TED talk too was wild because I usually, uh, when I'm booked to speak, I'm booked, you know, like most speakers months and months in advance to, to keynote an event or something. And uh, the TED, that, that entity had contacted me and encouraged me to apply for the TEDx in February. Like they knew who I was and they wanted me to apply. So, I mean, I didn't know for sure that I would get it, but that's a pretty good sign when the event organizer yes. wants you to do it. And I didn't hear anything for months. And I just, just presumed, well, COVID, right? <laughs> and then uh, they, they emailed me and they said, well, we've decided to do it virtually. Mm -hmm. And I'm set up for that. I mean, I've got the green screen and all that stuff, but um, they gave me, they, they said, okay, we need you to submit the talk in one week and, and have it turned in as a video no no later than one week thereafter. So I had two weeks to write and do this. So that was pretty stressful, but I'm, I've gotten a lot of really, really cool feedback from it. And I, and a lot of people said that it's been beneficial for them. So um, in the end, it was a, a neat experience and I'm grateful for that. Now you've had another experience more recently, a health yeah. scare. Tell us about mm -hmm. that, Dr. Richard. Yeah, and uh, that was very unexpected. So I, uh, I had suffered a stroke. Um, almost impossible for me to conceptualize that. So at 2.30 in the morning in June, I, I woke up and I didn't like feel a pop in my head as some people do. But I was literally like I was thrashing around in this bed like a fish out of water. And I felt hot. I felt anxious. I've never felt any physical sensation like this. And my mouth felt weird. And I was just, just out of it. And instinctively, I grabbed my wife's pillow and yanked it out from under her head. And uh, my wife, much, much like most wives, values her sleep and was not really happy that I did that. Uh, and rather than say, something's wrong, I need help, for whatever reason, the words that came out of my mouth at that time were, I'm sorry. And she, you know, grunted and rolled her eyes and went back to bed. And I went back to bed with my brain bleeding. <sighs> and what probably saved me was our puppy, COVID puppy, uh, started barking at 530 in the morning. So now my brain's been bleeding for three hours. And I it's my shift, right? It's like a baby who takes the dog out, you know. And, and so I stand up and I'm unsteady, but I attributed this to the Benadryl that I had taken the night before. I'd taken an antihistamine. I was a little bit allergic. And so I go downstairs and 
and the dog, we were crate training him and failing miserably, Bruce, I might mm. add at that. And so um, he had left a surprise in the cage that truly required two people to, to remedy this. So up the stairs I go and I inform my wife of what this dog has done and what our pup has done. And she shoots up immediately. You're slurring your words. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm thinking yeah, that Benadryl really did a number. Like mm-hmm. I, and it's still inconceivable to me. It wasn't anywhere on my radar. And so we get the dog and we get him to the front of the house and open the door and put him on a leash. And I'm going to take him out and walk him. And I go to grab my cell phone. And in that moment, I realize I don't know how to turn it on. I have no idea how to use my cell phone. Wow. And in that moment, like it all clicked and it was like Bruce Willis and the sixth sense, the clues had been there all along unsteady slurred words. Oh my God, I've had a stroke. And now I'm realizing I had a stroke hours ago. And so we grab the kids and get them in the car and they don't know and understand what's going on. And, you know, they know what a hospital is. And so um, my, my wife is crying and we're, we're off to this hospital. And uh, I just tell them that I have a headache, which is Obi-Wan Kenobi said was true from a certain point of view. Uh, and, and so <laughs> we get to the hospital and hospitals are very different now, right? It's not like it was before. So, That's right. You know, there's a hazmat suit wearing person who greets you in this plastic makeshift tent and you tell them what's happened and, um, you know, they, they let you into this area and then they have to stick the thing up your nose to see if you have COVID. I didn't. Um, and I, we had a joke in graduate school that, you know, pray you never have a stroke or a traumatic brain injury because you're going to know the answer to every question anybody's going to ask you. And it was so true. Uh, I was laughing, actually. Um, you know, they, they do this thing. It's called a mini mental status exam, and they're going to ask you three words. And they're going to say, oh, I'm going to say three words. And I sent them back to them before they even asked me, which was, you know, in, in hindsight, funny. But they were looking at each other very confused. And so anyway, uh, the doctor said, okay, we're going to do a CT scan and we're going to look for a stroke. Okay. CT scan completed. They, they read it within five minutes, nothing. They said, you haven't had a stroke. We're going to discharge you. And I said, no, 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 You like, I'm fighting for my life here, you know, cause it like Luke Perry died, not from the first stroke, but the complications thereafter, you know? And mm-hmm. so, you know, that was in my mind too. And I had this little, little voice in my head, which reminded me something that my first boss, a uh, mentor, and he's still a mentor all these years later out of college taught me. It was, I had a sales job and he said, if you ever are making a proposal and you're, or you're laying down the gauntlet, when you stop talking, stare them in the eye and don't say a word because whoever talks first is the one that's going to give in more often than not. Right. And so I just say to this, this ER doc, he said, listen to me very carefully and, you know, I'm not a lay person. I'm a doctor. You know, I saw patients at the Cleveland Clinic. I, I'm, and you know damn well that, uh, you know, embolic strokes will show up on a CT scan, but ischemic strokes might not. And we're running out of time and you're going to do an MRI right now. Order it, you know, and, and then I just locked in on him and I could feel how tense that room was. And we kind of stared at each other. It was like the old West, you know, with the, you know, that classic score and the tumbleweeds floating by, like, that's what it felt like. And finally, you know, after, you know, maybe 10 seconds, he rolled his eyes at me and he acquiesced and he ordered the MRI, which showed a stroke just off of my basal ganglia, which is a major center of the brain that controls speech and movement. And I just missed it. 
like by a millimeter. And so um, they immediately admitted me, gave me blood thinners. And so, um, but I did have issues. I mean, my, I had a huge droop in my face. Uh, my speech at this point was impaired to the degree that the, the voice assistant on my phone, I did remember thumbprint. Oh yeah. Thumbprint. Uh, I did, re you know, I, I wanted to text people and kind of keep them up to date. Uh, but the, the voice assistant couldn't recognize me because my speech was so bad at this point. And I wanted to text, but in my mind, I knew what letters I wanted to push, but my thumbs could get nowhere near, nowhere near. Like it took me, you know, just, I remember there's just texting, you know, stroke took me like, like 10, 15 minutes. It was mm. so frustrating. And so, um, you know, strokes are interesting too, because if you break your arm, you can really kind of figure out immediately uh, okay, so uh, I can still run, but I can't, I can't lift weights or I have to voice dictate my emails and uh, put on a trash bag when I shower. Like you, you know almost immediately how you're going to modify and when you're going to resolve, when these issues are going to resolve and everything's back to normal. But with a stroke, it's so different because you don't know what the fallout is. You have no idea. I don't, I didn't know in that moment if I was, if my professional career was over, if I was going to be able to do my podcast anymore, be a speaker anymore, run my business, drive even, was mm -hmm. I going to have memory impairment? Like these are the thoughts going through my mind. Uh, but I, you know, I, I'm admitted they're giving me really great care. And that first day was rough. I mean, I was afraid to go to sleep. You know, people, they check on you every four hours, but a lot can happen in four hours, right? And I yes. just like, I pulled up a picture of my wife and kids on my phone and I just stared at it all night long and just kept telling myself, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And I did. Uh, and then, you know, historically when, you know, bad things happen to me like that, you know, in that moment, you know, I deal with it. But then I shift into this cue the Rocky montage music and how do I get better? And then I began... I'm a huge visualization, that's the word, visualization guy. And I really would spend eight hours a day in the hospital with my eyes closed and seeing the neurons in my brain rewiring. Like I literally, you know, I kind of made it like an animated cartoon, like little both things of electricity were connecting. And uh, I would say to myself, I'm well, I'm better than before. I'm on stage. I'm sharing my experiences. And I set a goal of being fully recovered in a ridiculous amount of time. And uh, I was fully symptom free in two weeks. In two weeks? Two weeks. And then I spoke to about 5,000 people three weeks after that and shared my story. And the piece I omitted, Bruce, was uh, I didn't tell you how I had, why I had a stroke because, because I had none of these risk factors, you know, the, yes. you know, eating right, exercising every day, no, never did drugs, no drinking, no smoking. Like I, I had no risk factors. So they didn't know what to do with me because of my age and because of that. So they sent me to every specialist, sent me to, oh, go see an oncologist. Maybe you have cancer. I didn't have cancer. Uh, maybe it's your thyroid. Let's, let's take a look at your endocrine system. Endocrine system wasn't the reason. Oh, maybe it's sleep apnea. No. <laughs> you know, so like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I almost killed myself literally because I was working too hard. Wow. And what is your age? 46. 46. And it was all because you're working too hard. No other issues. And the thing of it is, is that I am very privileged to do what I do. I love what I do. It wasn't like I went to this job that I hated. 
And so the lie that I told myself was, and so many entrepreneurs do, is that it's not really work if you love what you do, right? We beat our chests about that. You have to have balance in your life. And certainly mindfulness can be a massive part of that. I didn't, I thought I did actually, because I just, I, I loved what I did, but I, I didn't. And it, it was painfully apparent. And so I went from 70 hours a week to 25. Oh, wow. Major change. Because, yeah, because my neurologist said you have to radically reduce your hours because your life depends on it. And I didn't want to, like in terms of the work, obviously I want to be here as long as I can be here for my wife and my children. And so I did that. I, sh I just, I mean, cut my hours down and something interesting happened. I was still getting the same amount of critical things done in 25 that I got done in, in 70. That is how interesting. Is that, how yeah. is that possible? I said, you know, the scientist in me now, you know, the, the doctor part of me is really like, okay, well, now I've got to research this. And so I, I began doing a literature review of existing data. And the research is pretty clear, is that we actually are more productive at 25 hours than we are at 40. And why do we work 40? Why are pancakes a breakfast food, but hamburgers are not? because it's always been that way. And so the the other kind of piece of this is that I had my, my other business where you mentioned that I'm the CEO of this, this company, I'm this, the, this technology company called Your Success Insights. We provide these tools you know, to help people have wellness and wholeness and balance in their lives. And so like all the pieces came together for me. Okay, okay, like this is, this is what I have to evangelize now. I have to get a preach about, we don't have to work ourselves to death, you know? And so now my, my life's very different. I shut the laptop at four every day. And this, this is the first weekend podcast I've done since then. And I used to do a lot of them. And again, like it's, it's Bruce Langford. And, and, you know, so I was excited, uh, you know, to have you on my show and to be on yours you know, because I have so much respect for what you're doing, but I literally treat my hours like Weight Watcher points. I've got a set number of hours. And when I ex exceed them, I'm done. I'm done. I don't respond to emails after hours. People send me emails all the time. I have people, you know, that I, in other countries that I work with and such. So there's always stuff coming in all night long. And, you know, I, I think too, in a COVID world where we've shifted the workplace a lot to where now people are working from home. When we do that, we've removed the barriers or the boundaries, I should say is a better word. We've removed those to where like if, if somebody's boss or coworker sends an email, we feel this urge to respond to it in that moment and stop what we're doing. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. And so, you know, it, that was a process for me learning. Uh, and, and I did refine and, and have kind of created some techniques and things that I do to make the 25 hour work, work week make more sense and be more efficient. But, you know, it, it is a dangerous precedent because I think even after COVID goes away and we have a vaccine that's safe and everybody it's distributed and everybody takes it. And we start talking about COVID like we talk about polio as this you know, thing of the past. I don't think we're going to hundred percent go back to the workplace the way it used to be. Because I think it, employers and companies have realized that, well, if they can do this work at home, why do we need to spend, you know, $40,000 a month on 
office space or, you know, and cleaning and, and all these other things. So we're still going to work from home a lot, maybe not quite as much, but I think it's going to still be kind of prevalent. And then what does that mean? Because the data has always shown that people who work from home uh, actually work more hour wise than those who go up to an office. And so now when we've got cell phones tied into our work email, literally you can't escape it. You can't escape it. And so, you know, we have to have healthy boundaries. We have to have a mindfulness practice that, that is going to basically give us a little bit, a little bit of armor to shield us from the stressors. And, and, you know, so my, my goal long-term is to teach organizations how they can empower their employees to set their own hours, to have uh, the freedom to do that and that they don't have to work 50 hours a week. You know, I, I think, I, re, I think back to what a, a, a resident at the time I was in a practicum student at the Emory School of Medicine and this resident said to me, uh, you know, that somebody told him, his mentor, because we were stressing out, oh, we've got this exam and this exam and this, this, this. He said, listen, the work will always get done. No matter what you have, you'll always be able to find the time to do it. And if you think about things in that context, whatever it relates to, whether it's your job or whether it's you know responsibilities for your kids, then it kind of takes away that pressure of time, right? Because it, you pull, you, you uncock the, the trigger and the gun to your head. And, and so when you think about it like that, you know, then it's okay. And I, and I, you know, so there's techniques that I teach people like, you know, how to kind of create your autoresponders in a certain way where you can politely tell people not right now, um, but give yourself those breaks, give yourself those pauses in a day to spend with your loved ones or to do something that you really like, even if it's for 15 minutes a day to get into your gratitude practice or get into your mindfulness meditation. Because if you don't do that, if you allow your external environment to control you rather than the other way around, you really are increasing your risk of health concerns. I'm an extreme example, what happened to me, but I'm also the great minority in terms of outcomes. Most people who go through what I go through are never the same. Right. Wow. It's incredible that you've been able to spring back the way you have. And uh, so I take my hat off to you as far as the fact that you did just cut right back. You immediately uh, changed your hours and, and changed how you lived your life. Now, I didn't ask you a question about bullying and I want to, uh, but we're starting to run out of, out of time a little bit here. Have you ever been bullied? Has bullying ever played a role in your life? And if so, how would mindfulness have maybe made a difference? I think everybody's been bullied at one point or another. Um, you know, that happened to me a little bit in elementary school. And so... I, I think as a kid in particular, and I've worked a lot with children who have been physically and sexually abused, so I can speak to this uh, from a clinical standpoint as well as you know from an experiential one. I, I, mindfulness isn't going to make the bullying stop, right? Like if it's happening, and it's pr particularly now with cyberbullying, like you, you as a parent or you as a victim would have to take some kind of action to alert somebody who's in a position to make that stop, right? So that's number one. But I think if you have a mindfulness practice, one, you're better able to handle the stress of what that looks like. 
And two, and I think this is the the important piece and is often really not looked at in a critical way, you, you're going to be less prone to internalize what's being said about you or if in fact something's happening to you. Because a lot of times with, with victims of bullying and abuse, they not only internalize what may be said about them, but they believe it's their fault. They take that on. With, they take ownership of that. And I think mindfulness would help with that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we, we tend to do that. And then, but the more we listen to ourselves, the more we can suddenly say, just a second, what did I just do? Why am I taking yeah. this on? Yeah, absolutely. Now, as we move forward in the interview, uh, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has had a powerful influence in the area of mindfulness in your life? 30 seconds. Uh, Hal Elrod, because uh, what Hal's book, The Miracle Morning, did for me was give me a space to find time to meditate that I never knew was possible. And from there, I was able to kind of explore different ways of doing things related to mindfulness and visualization and gratitude. So 100% Hal Elrod, yeah. one of the best books I've ever read. And I'm so grateful that I've had him on my show a few times. He's a great human being. Yeah, and I agree. It's a terrific book. I really appreciate Hal for sure. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I think that it allows me to take a step back. And you know, there, there are similar techniques we use in cognitive behavior therapy to really be an objective bystander, so to speak, to emotions and, th and recognize that you know, the world isn't doing this to you, that this is something that's happening and that you have a choice as to how you respond to it. And I try and view you know, all situations you know, through that lens. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. A breathing is, is very important. Uh, shallow breathing is what is not great. It's that deep diaphragmatic breathing. And I do that every day. I do that every day. In fact, I have a, a red light therapy panel that hangs on my wall and I stand in front of that thing for 20 minutes every day. And I do my breathing during that. So I get to combine those two. So I know I'm getting at least 20 minutes of deep breathing in every day. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? I read it a long time ago, but I was impressed with it. 10% Happier by Dan Harris. I imagine a lot of people on this show say that as an answer. So, uh, but a, a great book because it, it simplifies the language, you know, it demystifies a lot of things and it's an easy read. Yeah. Can you share an app which can help with mindfulness? Uh, I have really gotten to like the Insight Timer app. It's free. They have premium content. Again, I, I've been curious to talk to you off here and see how many people say these exact same answers. But uh, I, I've used a bunch of them. I've used calm.com. I've used Insight Timer. Um, but I like Insight Timer because of the variety of the, the content in it. Yeah, I like it too. It's really become popular. It's a great app. I, I think it, I agree with you completely. Well, it's been fantastic to have you on the show, Dr. Richard. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing in the world. You know, can you, I, can I do something for your audience too? Well, is it, that is would be just a little great. bit of great, grateful. So, uh, 
I I always you know am grateful to to speak to audiences and uh, really want to do something that helps everybody listening to this be better than they were the day before. And so I kind of alluded to it, but uh, I've got a, a technology platform and something that's really cool. And, and especially now in a COVID world, it's called the Powers. And what it does is it, it in five minutes uses algorithms to determine. Uh, the three things in your life where you're going incredibly well and three things that are challenges for you and really help you achieve balance because uh, certainly mindfulness is a lot about balance and there's different terms for like Juliana Ray likes equanimity is her her word. But uh, I'd like to offer a, a little treat. So if you use the code mindfulness mode, well, let me give you the URL. If you go to seekyourpowers.com, and use the code mindfulness mode. We have a new companion app. So I'm hoping if you ever ask me that question again, uh, I'll say, well, my app, <laughs> but what <laughs> sure. this, what this app is, is pretty cool. It's an AI accountability partner to which basically the, the results of your assessment get fed into this app automatically. And you have essentially an artificial intelligence asking you questions. Are you getting enough water a day? Are you doing your breathing in these different areas? And so if you use the code mindfulness mode, we're going to give everybody a month of that for free. Wow, that's exciting. Thank you very much for doing that, Dr. Richard. I know AI is becoming more and more popular and, and you know, like people feel like, hey, there's no risk. I can go on that and I can answer the questions yep. and I can learn about myself and I don't feel like I have to be vulnerable. And I mean, it's good to be vulnerable sometimes, but yes. there are times when it's not good to well, be. Well, it's interesting. And I know we're, we're going over time and getting off t- a topic a little bit, but the, the research has showed that there are a large number of people that are more comfortable using an artificial algorithm than actually talking to a coach or counselor because it takes the, you know, kind of that personal thing. So, uh, you know, everything that that we build is built to help people. So, yeah, check out the powers. If you if you buy the powers, we're going to give you a month of that app for free when it comes out uh, in Q4. And just just an honor to be on your show to connect with your audience. And um, you know, would love to you know continue adding value. So let's 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 stay in touch and do this again sometime. Okay. Well, it's been an honor to have you on the show as well, Dr. Richard and seekyourpowers.com is where we go and we use mindfulness mode as the, as the promo code. So thank you very much for that gift and all the best to you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye now. Hey, thanks for listening today. Mindful tribe. I hope you liked this episode with Dr. Richard Schuster. A shout out to the Cascade Hypnosis Center. If you're having challenges with a painful past, maybe you are having struggles with weight loss or smoking, or there's some other issue that you just can't seem to get past. Well, the Cascade Hypnosis Center is the place for you. You can check them out at their website. It's easy to get to cascadehypnosiscenter.com. And also, you may want to use hypnosis in your coaching. Maybe you're a healer or a consultant. You can use these skills of hypnosis in your training with others. So check out the training. Check out what they have to offer. Cascadehypnosiscenter.com. And now, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.